Church, I hope you have your Bible with you this morning because uh, if you're new with us, we have this weird habit of like opening our Bible and like reading our Bible. And we do that really because we believe that the Bible in which you're holding in your hand is the inspired Word of God and it holds the truth about God. That what you're holding in your hand holds the truth about the church and it holds the truth about us. We believe it holds the truth about who we are and how we are to live. So if you got your Bibles this morning, I hope you do. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. We are in a series entitled House Rules, where what's happening is we're walking through a book together that was written by the Apostle Paul to the young pastor Timothy, who is pastoring a city in the very ungodly city of Ephesus. And each week of the series, we've tried to help you see the why behind this book. And we've told you that the book is sort of like an owner's manual for the church, if you will, about how we are to conduct ourselves as the people of God in a city that does not believe in God. Because the city in which Timothy finds himself is the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus, by the way, it's not an agnostic city. It's not a spiritually neutral city. It's not a spiritually bland city. It's a city filled with all sorts of beliefs, all sorts of worship of all kinds. And so today, I'm not so sure that the cities in which we live are all that different. And anytime you have worship of any kind or beliefs of any kind, you're going to have to deal with false teachers. And if you're in real estate, the three most important things to you is location, location, location. If you're uh, the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, apparently the three most important things to you are repetition, repetition, repetition. Because that's what's going to happen. He's going to go after something this morning that's absolutely essential for the church, and he's gone after it before. He's going to deal with false teachers. Whether the false teacher is a culture, whether the false teacher is a parent, whether the false teacher is a, someone in the political arena, it's a school, it's a best friend, it's a neighbor, or the false teacher is your pastor, we have to deal with false teachers. In fact, Paul has been going after them since chapter one. And I would say he started off a little tame, in my opinion, uh, especially for who Paul is, because by the time you get to chapter four, Paul calls them hypocrites and liars. That's fun, right? He's been railing against them uh, since the very beginning of this book, calling them men seared in their own consciences as with a branding iron. He says that false teachers have hard hearts. And this morning, Paul is going to unearth some of the root issues. And these issues might, uh, they, they've wrecked havoc at least on the Christians in Ephesus. And I think these same issues might be wrecking havoc on us in our city. 
Because what we're about to discuss this morning is tied directly to our hearts. Because underneath all of this teaching is a heart issue. God has always been after our hearts. And much like what a smartwatch does for runners, much like what a smartwatch does for cyclists, what a smartwatch does for those who frequent the gym, Paul's going to bring to the surface the heart data in order to expose something that we must not ignore. Paul is going to say, Timothy, these things that these false teachers are doing, these things that they're saying, these, that this way that they're living, it's not good. Timothy, I want you to take a moment and examine yourself and make sure that the things that are true of these men are not true of you. You have to examine your heart, Timothy, and make sure the things that are being displayed and shown as, as heart data of these men are not in your heart. So Paul's going to take seven verses and deal with false teachers, and then he's going to take six verses to compare and contrast so that Timothy really understands what's different. So let's take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 3. This is what it says. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he says they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, your Bible might say abusive talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction, your Bible might say perpetual friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to gain, your Bible might say as a means to financial gain. Again, not kind words from Paul regarding these men. These people, or this culture, or these other religions, or this group of some kind, they are advocating a doctrine that is different to what Paul has been teaching. And do you see the word sound there, where it says sound instruction? Uh, the word in the original language is where we get our word hygiene. What Paul is saying is healthy or sound doctrine brings about health in a church, just like hygiene brings health to our bodies. But that means the opposite is also true. False teaching brings about disease in the church, just like young teenage boys who don't shower or don't brush their teeth, but like once a week, they bring filth and stink into our homes, and then their room smells, and then your furniture smells, and then they're eventually going to need a doctor or a dentist. All the moms are like, amen, preach, right? And Paul starts off by saying, these men do not agree with sound instruction about our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know where you stand, but if you disagree with Jesus, that's usually not a good place to stand. Anywhere in our world today reject Jesus? Like, anywhere in our world today reject Jesus' teaching on certain issues? Yeah, Paul is also addressing the belief of that day that what you say you believe does not need to affect your actions. And 
It doesn't need to affect what shows up in your life. There's no need for congruency between what you believe and what actually shows up in your life. Is that still around today? You bet it is. And that's around inside the church and outside the church. And so what we see is that a false teacher tends to say things like, my life doesn't necessarily need to change based on what I say. I believe. A false teacher says things like, personal holiness doesn't matter. It's no big deal. I believe in Jesus, but now I can do and say and go wherever I want. It's not a big deal. You're nothing but a legalist. That's a false teacher. Believers, while we do struggle, while we do sin, believers should be bearing fruit of some kind, should be growing in Christ's likeness in some way, we should be looking more and more like Jesus, not on Sunday, but every day, and we should be looking more and more like Jesus in every way, not in some ways or most ways, we should be looking, all areas of our life should be subjected to him. And and look at verse 4 again. See, this isn't ignorance. This isn't like an honest mistake. This is intentional. It says they are conceited, which means to be puffed up. Here's the imagery for the visual learners. Ever been in a really, really dense fog? I took my son to check out Biola. We're in California. We drove up to San Francisco to check it out, which is a long drive. See, when you're from Florida, you don't realize how long that drive is because you're dumb, and that's, that, that was me. And we happened to hit it on a day you couldn't see anything. I mean, you could see nothing. When men are spouting off their foolish air, these false teachers are, in a sense, in a theological fog. And as a result, Paul says that they have an unhealthy interest. Your Bible might say a morbid interest. Morbid or unhealthy, that's a medical term, meaning that something is sick and diseased. But in this case, the disease or sickness isn't in their physical bodies. The disease and sickness, it's in their hearts. And this sickness of heart, it brings about these these terrible attributes in them. They want to sit. They want to deconstruct by arguing over words, not realizing that words have changed in meaning over time. They want to avoid context discussions. They want to isolate passages and not look at supernatural continuity. And they don't want to look at the text as a whole. They want to argue about side topics that have no bearing on the larger issue of Christ. And all of it only ever leads to, according to Paul to envy, to quarrels, to verbal abuse, it says, to evil suspicions and perpetual friction between men who are corrupted in mind and deprived of the truth. And to be clear, this isn't like iron sharpening iron discussions where you can sit with people and have a good kind of conversation and and wrestle with some things. These aren't men and women who are having challenging conversations as they clarify the sound biblical doctrine of the scriptures. This is people who think they have sound doctrine. Doctrine that's not based on scripture because they really haven't ever read the scriptures or biblical teaching. All of their doctrine is based on wants, on preferences, on popularity, on convenience. It's based on anything but the scriptures. 
And I want you to think back for just a moment and note the contrast between how Paul started this off in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and really what he says here. Because in chapter 1 he says the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's what we should be doing. And I want you to take a look now at the result of this posture here. And what this does, when these false teachers take this posture of heart, when you do this, it leads to constant friction. It leads to a depraved mind. Do you see any false teachers in our world today? But what's interesting here is the question has to be, where do all of these issues, where do all these false teachings come from? See, Paul's been showing us some of the fruit on the tree, but he hasn't gotten to the root yet. Verse 5, Paul exposes it. He digs up a root of the tree and shows us their underlying problems. Verse 5, who think that godliness is a means to gain. Your Bible might say a means to financial gain. Now we know there's more ways of gain than just financial. There's popularity, there's power, there's all sorts of things. Money is certainly one of them. And he focuses on money here. He talks more about money. Because this is what all the false worship was about. You tell me if you think the same thing is true today. These false teachers in Ephesus that Timothy was battling, whether it's religion or culture or spiritual leaders or whatever, they believe that their job, they believe that their position, they believe that their authority and their power that they have somehow uh, received, that it's to be used for personal gain. Is that true today? Yeah, I think that's true today. The NIV actually uses the phrase financial gain. Other translations just say gain. And while gain certainly means more than just financial gain, money, greed is certainly a core issue. They believe that the church ultimately is there for their career advancements and for selfish gain. They want to pad their pockets with the proceeds of the gospel. And it's coming from a diseased heart, an attitude, a desire to exalt themselves and to hoard money selfishly. And when you do that, he says, all of these other things, strife and envy and and friction and abusive language, all these things that Paul mentioned, they come from this core issue of chasing personal gain, of chasing money, of chasing power, of chasing fame. But look at verse 6. Godliness should actually result in something else. Something other than monetary gain, verse 6 says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. That word contentment literally translates satisfaction with one's life situation. Contentment comes when we unhitch happiness from our circumstances. Contentment comes when we unhitch happiness from circumstances. Contentment comes when we say, Lord, what you have provided for me is enough. I I don't need to use my position, my influence, my fame, my authority, or dishonest means to bring about gain for me. What you have provided is enough. It's the view that regardless of what we have or what we don't have, God, you are sufficient in it all whether I'm in want or I'm in need. 
the book of Proverbs paints it like this. And I want you to ask yourself if you've ever prayed this prayer. I had to wrestle with this this week. And honestly, I, I don't know that I prayed this prayer. Proverbs says, two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Check, prayed that. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I might become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. You ever prayed that prayer? And me neither. Me neither. I, I shouldn't say that. I prayed half that prayer. Because we're really quite good at praying the other side of that prayer. Oh God, I've been poor. I've been college poor. I've eaten ramen noodles every night. PB&J was my friend. So God, help me never go back there ever again. These days, God, I'd like to try life and suffer with money. I'd like to win that lottery because I'll use it all for your name. And I will suffer and, and I, will, I will walk that difficult road with you, God. Help me suffer through that. We prayed that prayer, haven't we? But the author here says, Lord, please don't make me rich. Because I know that there are problems that come with that. I know that my heart is inclined in that direction. And I just need you, God, I just need you to give me enough. Give me my daily bread. It's funny, no matter how many raises we get, we're glad when we receive it. But in one year, it's never enough. It's funny how that works. God, take care of my life. Take care of my needs. But beyond that, God, there's trouble when my heart begins to long after that stuff. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul talks about this idea of contentment. And he unpacks it even further. He says, for I have learned to be content. That's interesting. He's learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret, he says. He's got a secret. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He says, I've got the secret. I know the answer to contentment. And we're all going, what is it? Because this church he's talking to has been persecuted and is in the midst of suffering. And Paul, he's been persecuted and he's been in the midst of suffering. But do you want to know what the secret to contentment is? You actually have the verse memorized that comes next because the next verse is I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength that verse has nothing to do with football games <laughs> it has nothing to do with all sorts of that is a verse about contentment it's a it's a verse about being satisfied in what God gives whether we're on top of the world or in the shadow of the valley of death whether that's a lot or whether that's a little, circumstantial high, situational low, saying, Lord, thank you for what you've given me. There is gratitude in contentment. I'm not sure you can be grateful without being content. Paul's secret 
is Jesus and his sufficiency. That's the secret. And it's not that the gospel can't or won't change your physical circumstances. God is completely capable of doing whatever he wants. But what Paul is saying is that doesn't need to be our primary motivation as Christians, as marketplace missionaries to the world, as pastors to the world, as people who are called to pastor their friends, to pastor your coworkers. You are called to, to pastor your neighbors and more. Godliness will bring you great gain as long as it's Jesus-focused and not self-focused. A spiritual gain comes from being content with what he's given. Paul says, Timothy, live gratitude in contentment. I think Paul is looking through the ages at faith covenant and says, faith covenant, live gratitude in contentment. Now, Paul is going to give Timothy two reasons here why chasing after money is a really bad idea and how chasing after money wrecks contentment. Paul writes in verse 7, For we brought nothing into the world, and we could take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Kevin translation, there are no U-Hauls attached to hearses. Like, that's not a thing, right? Not a thing. There are no U-Hauls attached to hearses. And if you make your life about those things, he says it's foolishness. There's more to life than that. That stuff will just leave you wanting more. He says God is for you. Jesus died for you. He loves you. The Holy Spirit is guiding you. God will provide for you, so be content. But that is never enough for false teachers. It's never enough. Look at verse 9 now. He says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation, into trap. And into many foolish and harmful desires that, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I remember being at this very church wrestling with my calling to be a pastor. You know I owned a business. I felt like maybe God was calling me out of that into ministry. I sat and I talked to the senior pastor of this church, Dr. Rock Doddridge, and said, I don't know. And he said, I think you might be called into ministry. And I said no for a long time. You, know, you want to know why? I said this to him. Because pastors make no money. That's what I said to him. That's what I thought. I said, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I'll work really hard. I'll make a lot of money. I'll give 10% to the church. I'll load the church up with 10%, of course, knowing that I get to keep the other 90%. I said, that, that, that's what I'm going to do. See, I didn't have a view of the church that it's a place to care for the flock. I didn't view the church as a place to shepherd the flock or to feed the flock. I didn't view the church as a place that I get to walk alongside you in some of the most difficult seasons of your life, but I also get to walk with you in some of the most beautiful seasons. I wasn't interested in the heralding the beauties of the gospel. And, and because I viewed the world bifurcated, I didn't realize I was already a pastor to my clients. 
I didn't realize I was already a pastor to my coworkers and to my neighbors. That I was already a marketplace missionary. I was just a poor one. Like I, 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 was a ba- I, I didn't do it well at all because I never realized that that's what I was. I saw my business as a means to get rich and not a ministry, not as spiritual, not as an opportunity to be like Christ everywhere I went and everything I said did. I saw the paychecks as the end goal of what I did. I was there with a spiritual false motive at work. I needed to check my heart, and I needed to check my heart whether I ever became a pastor or not. Whether I ever entered into full-time pastoral ministry, it has nothing to do with that. I needed to check my heart because I was still a marketplace missionary. I needed to check my heart because it was deteriorating before my very eyes. It was deteriorating because I was chasing money. And in verse 10, Paul is going to continue to explain why this is so detrimental. Verse 10 says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This verse, so other than Christians saying revelations with an S, there's no S, okay? Other than that, This is probably the most misquoted verse in your Bible, which means you misinterpret it because we think it says that money is the root of all evil. That's what we think it says, and that's not what it says. And when you say it like that, you are acting just like the Jehovah Witnesses who changed John chapter 1 verse 1 because this is what they say it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. One letter changes the meaning of that verse, and we do the same thing. Money's the root of all evil, not what it says. Paul writes, the love of money. Money's not the evil. It's the love of it, and it's a root. It's not all of the root. Of all kinds of evil, not all evil. See, the issue here isn't money. It's the love of something. It's the passion. It's the desire for money. The being consumed and longing to be rich. It's the idea of striving after something and wanting it above all other things in my life. Money doesn't consume us. Our longings and strivings and passions do. And I want you to notice the progression here because it's, it's actually a little scary if you look at the progression. These men are tempted first. They're tempted. And they long for it. And it says they're ensnared by it. The claws go in. And when it captures them, it says they drift and wander and depart from the faith. And then it says they are pierced. And that word Pierced is translated literally, pierced means tortured with consuming sorrows and ultimately are destroyed. That's a lot, right? That is the process from beginning to end when our lives are consumed with this heart issue. All evil is not found here in money, but lots and lots of it is. 
And when Paul says some people, right here in verse 10, it's almost like Paul is saying to Timothy, you know who I'm talking about. You know, some people, you know, you know that there are men and women that you and I both know who have destroyed their lives because they became false teachers and as a result they nullified their spiritual effectiveness because of their love for, their longing after, their constant seeking for money. And they no longer have a testimony. And they no longer have a witness. They are nameless men whose ministries are no longer because something else crept in the way. Jim Baker. Jimmy Swaggart. Kenneth Copeland. The list goes on and on. Benny Hinn. Joel Osteen. Bethel Church, and I use that last word loosely. False prophets peddling anything and everything, promising healing and whatever else. If you simply have enough faith and are willing to make a small donation to the church as a demonstration of that faith. This week, I googled pastor and fraud. And I thought I was going to throw up. The list of newspaper articles, pastor after pastor after pastor, just being disqualified, just broke me. And it was a stark reminder to me that this monster called the flesh is in all of us. And it's powerful. And it's a deadly thing. And it can grab some of these men and maybe it could grab me. Maybe it could grab you. And I pray it never does because the damage never affects just one person, does it? I shared with somebody this week that every church I've ever served in, the senior pastors had a moral failure. Every church. It's like a hand grenade goes off and the shrapnel hits everybody, doesn't it? And in a church our size, there's no doubt that there are people in here who have been affected by churches just like these, who have peddled a false gospel, men or women that were in positions of authority and used that authority for selfish gain to pad their own pocket with whatever it may be, whether it's fame or popularity or authority or power or money. I remember leading a a mission trip to War, West Virginia with a group of students. And we went to a tent revival Uh, that a local church was hosting with a traveling preacher. And during this message, this traveling preacher began to prophesy over people. And when he got to our team, he stopped and he prophesied over every single person on our team. And I don't even remember what he said about most of them, but there was one girl on our trip who was almost completely deaf. And he said to her in front of the whole gathered assembly, God told me, that he is going to heal you tonight. He said, you will hear this very night. He promised that girl healing. And you can imagine for someone who's been almost completely deaf their, their whole life, she wanted to hear more than anything else in the entire world. 
That's what she wanted to be healed. And this guy said she would be healed. And after all the singing is done, after all the dancing is done, after all the speaking in tongues and the preaching was over, that man left for the next town. And that young girl never heard. God never fixed her issue. For whatever reason, God chose to withhold healing for her at that time, and that devastated the faith of that young lady. She was promised something by this gentleman who was peddling healing for a simple love offering at the end. And the damage that this did in that young lady's life was tremendous. She began to ask questions like, does God care about me? Does God not love me? I mean, I know and I believe that God could heal me if he wanted to, so clearly God doesn't want to. Maybe my faith is small. Maybe my faith is worthless. Maybe it's not worth having any faith at all. And we had the privilege of sitting with her during that trip and for the weeks and months afterwards, re-communicating and reinforcing good, solid theology that God certainly can, but he doesn't always. We don't control that. And that he does love her. And that he can be trusted. And everyone who gets hit by shrapnel like this doesn't always have people around to care for and to shepherd and to guide and love them through it. These are wolves in sheep's clothing using the flock and shearing them for personal gain. Paul says it is not smart to live for, to strive for, and to love wealth. In fact, verse 9 and 10 says it's downright dangerous. But it's right here that Paul, he shifts gears. He wants this young leader, Timothy, to not do some things, but he also wants this young leader to do some things, four things, actually. And this is really where the heart check begins for Timothy and, and maybe for us. Look at verse 11. Paul writes, but you, man of God, flee from all this. Run and pursue righteousness. Pursue godliness. Pursue faith and love and endurance and gentleness. Flee, Timothy. Run, Forrest. Run, right? That's what he's saying. Flee. Don't mess with any of that stuff. Your life in ministry should not be defined by the love of anything except me. Not the love of money or the love of power or the love of fame. Any of that gain. He says it shouldn't be defined especially by money because you can't serve two masters. There's a really smart guy by the name of Jesus who said, like the Jesus, by the way, said something about this. You will either hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You can't. So Paul says, flee from all of that and pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, and so on, because you are a man of God, Timothy. Act that way. Live that way. And therefore, Timothy, you need to live differently, radically different, and look at how it says it will happen in verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. We take that out of context too, don't we? We use that verse for all sorts. Fight the good fight. Do you know what 
That means here? Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He says, Timothy, fight every day. This isn't a one-time thing, young man. It's a lifelong endeavor. Don't give in. We are citizens of a new kingdom, a lifelong kingdom now. Fight. Stay the course. Don't turn that way. It's going to be so tempting. It's going to be so hard. But pursue godliness. Pursue righteousness. When you think of your physical body, when your body is introduced to a disease, what do our bodies do when it realizes that something is inside of us that has the ability to cause death and sickness? Does our body just go, well, we should just coexist? No. No, our bodies, they shut it down. Our bodies produce antibodies. It produces white blood cells, and it battles these things because there is a disease in our body. And Paul tells Timothy the same thing. He says, this matters. These teachings matter. This truth matters, and these false motives of these false teachers, they need to be dealt with. So Timothy, fight that. Fight it every single day. Take hold of the confession you made that you said you believed. And you remember the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You remember the strength that's found in the gospel. You remember the courage that the Holy Spirit gives you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember gratitude in contentment. The question we have is, well, how, how long do we have to fight? Because most MMA matches I watch are like three rounds or boxing matches, 12 to 15. Well, let's see what he says here in verse 13. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who will testify before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you. He's leading up to something here that you know it's going to be hard because it gives a lot of affirmation ahead. To keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. Fight forever. Doesn't that sound exhausting? If it sounds exhausting to you, it's because you think you fight with your power. There's a Holy Spirit that lives in you who gives strength that never ends, who fights forevermore. He says, fight. Timothy, finish strong. Model well. Stay the course every single day. You've got this, young man. You've got this, pastors of Faith Covenant Church. And Paul closes this section. I love this. He's been pushing on this guy. He's building. He's building. And then he sort of busts out into like a doxology or a hymn of some kind. And then it's like you start preaching. If I'm in Detroit and they're preaching, and pretty soon they're like, oh, yeah. You know, pretty soon the pastors are singing at the end. It's almost like that's what Paul is doing here. Because what he says is, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever and ever. Amen. He ends with this sort of sobering reminder in all of this that this is the God we serve. He is completely unique. 
He is the eternal God. And like any other, calling us to eternal purposes. So Timothy, check your heart. And as fellow ministers of the city of St. Petersburg, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must be different. So check your hearts. The souls of men and women are at stake in how we handle ourselves. Stay the course, church. Fight this fight until he returns. Minister in your context with gratitude in contentment. And so as we wrap this up, let's be really clear. I don't want to leave any fog in the room. I am not the only pastor at Faith Covenant Church, just to be clear. I might be one of the few that have the title reverend, but no one uses that. I guess the students call me Rev Kev sometimes, but that's about it, you know. Because if I, and James, and Alex and I, we're not the only pastors at this church. We, or better translated, all y'all, okay? All y'all are the priesthood of believers, each one of you. And so we need to start fleeing from these things. And I need to start pursuing some things. And I'm going to have gratitude with contentment in all things. God says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's beyond cure. Who can understand it? And Disney says, follow your heart. When they sing that song to your kids, go, no, no, don't follow your heart. Never follow your heart. Don't do that. Because Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? He says, it is desperately sick. Because when I reduce the gospel to some self-help, moralistic, therapeutic gospel that basically says, God came to this earth to make my life better, that's stripping the gospel down to some self-help formula, some pop culture psychology message where we can lead our best life now. That's heresy. That is heresy. That is not why Jesus came to this earth. And though all of those things can happen, God can make our lives better. He can get us out of poverty. He can do, certainly do all of those things, that's not why Jesus came to this earth. The gospel, the true gospel that is presented to us by Jesus and the apostles in the scripture is Christ crucified. That's what it is. He came to deliver us from something, but it wasn't from poverty. It wasn't so that we could have financial gain. Christ came to this earth so that we could be set free from a master called sin that brought death and slavery and, and, and oppression to your lives. And, and you know what it brought? It brought eternal separation from the Father. That's what it brought. And Jesus conquered sin, making it possible to restore that relationship. Jesus rose again to prove that sin no longer has a hold on us anymore, now and forevermore, amen. That's what it is. That's what it is. Friends, that is the truth of the gospel. We need to be very careful in all of our hearts that we don't somehow whittle the gospel down to something else, some self-help message that God is here to make my life better. And though certainly he can, that's not why he came here. 
And so, church, the question I want you to ponder with your people at brunch today is, is God enough for you? Really? Maybe add that on the end. Is God enough for you, really? If God doesn't show up in your life and do all the things that you want him to do, is he enough? If he never helps you get rehired from that job that you were laid off from or got fired from and it wasn't your fault, is he enough? If he doesn't help your business, if he doesn't help you find a spouse, if he doesn't help you uh, find your first home or make your life less stressful, is he still enough? If he doesn't do anything else for you again other than his son Jesus Christ, is he still enough? Do you have gratitude in contentment? Is God enough in himself? Because have you found your satisfaction? Have you found your joy? And have you found your peace, your contentment in him? Is it enough that Jesus died for you, bringing you out of darkness into his glorious light, bringing us into his kingdom, and that we are now adopted sons and daughters of the most high God? Is that enough? For a healthy church, it is.